Today's guest is Dr. Bill Polonsky, president and founder of the amazing Behavioral Diabetes Institute, the world's first organization dedicated to studying and addressing the psychological needs of people with diabetes. He's also associate clinical professor in psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego. An active researcher, Bill's most recent projects have focused on quality of life in diabetes, diabetes-related distress and depression, hypoglycemic fear, glucose monitoring behavior, and attitudes in people living with diabetes. I think after this conversation, you'll agree that we need more people like Bill. How did you get into the diabetes world? How did you get connected with diabetes as a focus of your work? I wish I had some great heartfelt story of my little sister and Sarah, but I don't have any story like that. I was unbelievably lucky by an enormously odd roll of the dice that back in the 80s, I stumbled into a job at the Jocelyn Diabetes Center in Boston. And if I remember correctly, they had never hired a psychologist before, and they weren't exactly sure if they needed one, which was good since I didn't really know too much. And they were kind enough to give me a chance to work there and to learn there. And I, from day one until today, I just feel like I've been incredibly lucky. I've just met so many amazing folks and learned so much. I continue to. No great emotional story with close relatives or myself, unfortunately. I always feel like one down. <laughs> I imagine that you have become close to people over your long career that you have seen personally struggling or dealing with various issues. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to expand on my story. If you don't, of course, nowadays, I would say a large number of my friends have diabetes, especially type mm -hmm. one. But I remember the day I started at the, at the Jocelyn where I didn't have the slightest idea what to do. I was a psychologist, but I really didn't know very much about diabetes. So luckily, Jocelyn was, and I believe still is, one of the largest diabetes centers in the world. They have a really big waiting room, and there were a lot of people there. So I just, because I was ignorant and didn't know what else, as I just started walking up to people, sitting down and introducing myself and saying, hey, could, if you don't mind, could you tell me what's living with diabetes like for you? And I was so stunned because the first person I asked that question of, I remember she looked at me in surprise, and she said, thank you. Um. And I went, thank you. She goes, no one's ever asked me that question before. I went, that is messed up. And then I went to the next person and I asked the same question. And she and he or she, I can't remember, said, thank you. And this went on all day and the following day and for weeks and months. And in fact, nothing's really changed. I still have the chance to ask people, tell me what living diet with diabetes is like for you. And I continue to learn new things. And they continue to thank me, which is remains unfortunate. It shouldn't be me being the only person who asked that question, but that's how I got knowledgeable, just by opening my ears. One thing that Amy had asked, wanted to explore, and you've written a lot about, is just the whole idea of diabetes distress, which kind of goes into a lot of the research and work that you've done. And I know we had written in one of our questions about the prevalence of depression and diabetes dis distress. So one thing we wanted to unpack, too, is... How are those two things different? I'll tell you, but as long as you're asking me the question and I'm thinking about the Jocelyn, I want to go back in time and tell you where that idea came from. The reason we actually even started thinking about diabetes distress and we created the first questionnaire to take a look at that, which and these questionnaires are now used everywhere all over the world, is mostly because I was getting very annoyed with all the endocrinologists at the Jocelyn, who were really nice folks and really welcoming, except they kept 
referring patients to me. And they all came with the exact same diagnosis. And the diagnosis was, this person is in denial, please help them. And I found it very peculiar because I kept meeting all these people and actually none of them were in denial. And I realized we had to take a look at what was going on and find a better way of creating some language so we could talk about the kinds of struggles and stresses that people were going through beyond using these inaccurate and insulting terms, this person's in denial. So the whole idea of diabetes and distress became from my annoyance. And so we've continued to research this over the past more than 25 years now. At least in the samples that we've looked at in the United States, we see that very high, about 40% or so of people with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes meet our criteria for having significant levels of high levels of emotional uh, diabetes distress in particular. And by the way, that stands in contrast to something like clinical depression, which is less than half. So we know that people going through times where they're feeling fed up, overwhelmed, pissed off, and seriously upset about living with diabetes every day is really common. We've never formally defined the term diabetes burnout. I did in the book I wrote, but not as clearly from a research perspective as I think we should. But I can tell you that we've always thought of diabetes burnout as simply the extreme version of diabetes distress. When people get so distressed and so fed up, as they say, that's it. And they begin to back off from their diabetes. They begin to back off from as best as they can thinking about it. They begin to back off from the work, the effort you need to manage diabetes every day. And of course, that leads to significant trouble. That's how we define them differently. So diabetes stresses the dimension and diabetes burnout is streaming. And just as far as treatment, I'm just thinking about, because I myself have struggled with depression and diabetes distress. And just thinking about when I went to be diagnosed, how would somebody figure that out with their doctor, with whoever is making the diagnosis? Would, you know, would they have to be super proactive and say, by the way, I've lived with diabetes for so many years and, and that needs to be included in my portfolio or yeah, I think any endocrinologist I can think of in the world would probably have a heart attack if someone came in and actually said that. <laughs> so unlikely. But so for an individual who has diabetes, we have a free website now called diabetesdistress.org where you can go and online fill out one of our diabetes distress scales. It'll automatically score it and it'll let you know whether you're have an elevated level of distress. It can tell you what that's about because there's a bunch of subscales. It's pretty primitive. We never really have been well-funded on this website, so it's not like it gives you any brilliant ideas about how to solve any of these issues. It just brings it up and says, here's an issue you might want to talk about with a trusted healthcare provider. I hope when we get better funding, we can make it useful for folks. But it's available for anybody to look at. You asked another question about how do you distinguish it from depression? Is that true? And also thinking about treatment. What would somebody just write a prescription for Prozac and say, come back in six weeks? Yeah. Well, that's a really good question. So we've actually done a fair amount of work and have written a lot about the importance of distinguishing depression from diabetes distress or diabetes burnout. And we did that for one very particular reason. They're so different that if someone is just fed up and overwhelmed with their diabetes, trust me, giving them Prozac, 
will do nothing. So that's the big issue. The concern is, and the diagnostic concern, is that these problems do overlap. And they overlap, I can explain it best just conceptually, because of one word, which is powerlessness. That if you think about, for you or anyone you know who's ever been through tough times and got very depressed, the cognitive, the mental core of depression is a feeling of powerlessness. Bad things are happening to me. Just seems like there's nothing I can do about it. Depression kind of builds from In a similar way, diabetes distress is also about powerlessness. But it's about powerlessness about one thing. That my diabetes feels out of my control. Despite my best efforts, my blood sugars are crazy. Despite how much I hate this disease, I can't go more than 10 minutes without thinking about it. Despite all my efforts, I'm still running into problems. So it's powerlessness, but about something more specific. And there's no secret pill for the latter. What have you noticed about its evolution as we've developed more tools and sophisticated technologies? Do you feel like distress has changed or do you think it's still there? Let me answer the question I thought you were going to ask me first. First of all, it is a lot more okay to talk about it that for the first, I'd say, 10 years, talking about diabetes distress was invisible and no, it wasn't really recognized and at some point in the past five, six, seven years, all of a sudden it was like, oh, we should all talk for sometimes obvious reasons that if you really are particularly distressed and overwhelmed by your diabetes, it's going to get in the way of you being able to be in a safe and healthy place with your diabetes. I think, and no one's ever asked me that question before. I think certainly technology has changed it. It's, and play of the changes I see, what hasn't changed is the two most common things anybody with type 1 diabetes will tell you that's driving them crazy. It, and I'll ask you to tell me if, I'm, if you think this is true or not. It, one is what we call the 24-7 problem, feeling like I just never get a break. And the other one being the aggravation that I did everything and I'm still getting wacky results. you got to be freaking kidding me. And then diabetes doesn't play nice sometimes and doesn't cooperate. You don't hear that as much from people with type two, but that's sort of the number one and number two that most people with type one would say. There's a long list, but those are usually the top of the list. And for people with type two, I think we've become more aware and what's become more obvious is concerns about stigma and the shame and blame of type two diabetes. So there's been more recognition about that. And I think there's also been much more recognition, and this has only been in the past few years, that one of the biggest contributors to diabetes distress for people with type 2 diabetes is poverty. If you don't have the resources to manage diabetes, live in a food desert, if you can't get insurance, you can't afford your insulin. We Nowadays, the popular term is social determinants of health, which is unhealthful. I think we have to come up with some better way of talking about it. But we see type 2 diabetes skewing more towards a lower socioeconomic status. I think we feel so hopeless about that, we don't pay enough attention to it. So to me, those are, are pretty different. Um, I've been six months, I could probably a lot, tell you a lot more about what's changed. We just started a new type 2 diabetes distress scale that we've published a little bit of on. So we're gathering more information right now. What do you send or do you target? Are you... because? Often there are people that I see that are very motivated, doing well. I often see them once or twice a year. And then there's people that I wish I could see every week <laughs> because they're just struggling so much. And I don't know if a distress scale 
help it may be helpful just to identify and name what it is that they're experiencing. Um, yeah. To me, the equivalent of when, I mean, one of the reasons we really developed this scale is because what we are still hoping is that every healthcare provider in America who works with people with diabetes will at least once a year look their patient in the eye and say, can you tell me one thing about diabetes that's driving you crazy? Yes. Yeah. And the whole purpose of this questionnaire is to make that a little easier, but I'd rather you forget the questionnaire and just ask that one question. It's a, and it's being respectful to your patient. It's acknowledging, because of the way I just said it, that very likely there is something driving you crazy. By talking about it, maybe we'll be able to solve a problem that we didn't even know was standing in the way. Like, why is this person told an A1C of 9%? Why is nothing changing? Yeah. And I think that one question, if you listen to the answer, is the way to go. Tell me one thing about diabetes is driving you crazy. So the diabetes stress scale is simply a way to do that. It is a conversation starter. Wow, I noticed you really scored high on items one and two. Jeez. Something like something's really bugging you. Can you tell me more about that? What is it going to take? How can, what can we do to spread that message of what you're saying? Of the all you have to do is sit down once a year, at least once a year, look your patient in the eye and say, what's driving you crazy? That doesn't cost any money. I think my impression has been the fear is that it will cost money for the healthcare provider. Like it is opening Pandora's box. We know that most, not most, many healthcare systems, many of which I still work with, for example, wouldn't even bother having their patients fill out a depression questionnaire. And it's not because they aren't worried that someone might be depressed, but because they have no idea what to do with that. If someone scores high, hey, he's good. I'm going to have to deal with this, which will take time. I'm going to have to find someone to refer them to, and I don't know anybody. And I'm going to have to figure out what to say, and I don't know what to say. So it just gets magnified when you talk about diabetes and stress. I think many healthcare providers aren't quite sure about how to respond because the sense is like, oh my God, I've got to fix this right now. And the bigger concern, and of course I see Liz nodding, is that this is going to take time. How on freaking earth do you expect me to find extra time to deal with that? There was another study published just a couple of years ago in the UK where they looked at 860 people with type 2 diabetes, all of whom had been diagnosed about a year ago. And they asked them to fill out a little questionnaire. It was a 10-item questionnaire called the CARE Questionnaire about, so what do you think of your healthcare provider and how you've been treated since you developed diabetes? And this questionnaire was really about empathy. Do you feel like you're treated like a whole person? Do you feel like your healthcare provider listens to you? And then you could summarize that and have a total score based on how people respond in a zero to 10 score in each of these 10 items. Simple. But then this is what they did. Then they followed these people for 10 years. And the question they asked was, is there anything about how people felt about their relationship with their healthcare provider and a sense that their healthcare provider was on their side, had some empathy and trust, and how well that individual was doing 10 years later at a number of important health outcomes. The most important one, I think it's the most important one there is, was death. And what they found is those people who scored higher on that questionnaire scored their healthcare provider higher, their relationship higher, they were way more likely to still be alive. In yeah. fact, high, score, high scores were, you're about a 
we saw about a 40, 30 to 40% drop in mortality over 10 years. Wow. mortality. Crazy numbers. <laughs> so what the hell is happening? I just have to be pleasant with my patients. And what that means, the message we can give to healthcare providers, it's not that you have to be particularly incredibly warm and empathetic. It's just don't be an asshole. So maybe that's the message where you just, just pretend to care about your patient well as you can. We'll say just in, in the defense of my healthcare brethren, the stress that healthcare providers are under these days, the demands on your time. It's no wonder so many people are not their best selves. And there's so much, I'm on these different groups now and provider wellness and all this kind of stuff. And there's just a lot of energy about how to enjoy back to medicine because it has become so wising because it's, there's just so much to do. There's, there's just stuff coming at you all the time. And I think systemically something's got to change in order for people to come back to medicine in a way that they can, that they want to, that they came into it for the first place. I did it because they wanted to do more my chair messages. Right. <laughs> I didn't do it for that reason. And you're right. So I shouldn't have said, don't be an asshole so cavalierly. Because that's true. Most healthcare providers I know would prefer to be able to hang out and care more and really do right. the job they've always wanted to do. And they've just been thrown into this horrible factory farm existence. Yeah. It's really hard. Or there's no time to do anything. And it squeezes the life out of folks. And so we know that bur burnout, back to burnout, is unbelievably high in physicians in particular. But I do think there's small things that we can take away from what you're saying, which is Something I always lead with when I walk in the room is like, how are you and what's going on? It's like I try to start conversations with that. Like, you know, how's your summer been? Tell me a little bit. Just to not jump into the medical yeah. issues right away. Yeah. Treating your patients. They're not a number. They're a person, right? Yeah. I mean, how yeah. Wonderful. I think we need a better job of finding perhaps people like you, Liz, who've figured out a way to do it. Amidst the incredibly insane squeeze of my job. How am I remaining a human being? Am I trying to have some sort of real respectful emotional connection with my patients that doesn't bankrupt me? Yeah. No, there's group medical appointments. We see that as one way in which that's working. We have seen uh, lots of stories about other people in other countries have figured out really clever ways to do this um, that our healthcare provider colleagues have figured out that we should be learning from them. Because you'd think that it would go hand in hand to a certain degree. Like, Liz, if you're feeling burned out, you're tired of filling out the forms and not having enough time and all of these different issues. But if you were able to, like you said, ask them how their summer was and start off like that in, in your appointments, like eventually after time, wouldn't you think that would benefit both the doctor and the patient? Yeah. Maybe not immediately, but to reduce burnout on both sides. Because the doctor would feel a little more connected to the yes. person. To be yeah. fair to what Liz is saying, though, and Liz, maybe you figure this out. For many healthcare providers who are profoundly overwhelmed, even that question, though, raises the fear of opening Pandora's bottle. I ask this person how they are. What if they tell me everything? Which is why I go back to my question. Mrs. Smith, nice to see you. Can you tell me one thing about diabetes that's driving you crazy? Not everything. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. It, that's often the fear. Right. Do. Someone really says, oh, you want to know how I am? I'll tell you. Because people, there's so much suffering right now. Or, yeah. Yeah. So just to shift gears, what's something that you're hopeful about, Bill? What's something you're excited about with BDI or what's going on in the diabetes community or something you're feeling optimistic about? Well, let me say the obvious things that you know so well. 
I'm super excited about hybrid closed loop pumps and what's going to follow after that. And as we move towards beyond hybrid closed loop pumps so that you don't have to do even meal alerts. To me, that's just been miraculous. And as we're, as we're going to see CGMs getting smaller and even more accurate, and you've lived it, right? The changes that we've seen in the past, what, five years, and we have functional, trustworthy CGMs. I mean, just it's changed freaking everything. I don't know. I'm so excited about what's going on now in Type 1. I don't even know where to go after that. <laughs> I don't know about the emotional stuff yet, but just that is an emotional thing because we've published a bunch of stuff just on how all that technology, how that is having a huge, enormous, reducing emotional stress, helping people to sleep better, feel better, feel more hopeful about the future. So I'm not answering your question because I'm talking about what's available now and not, not talking about my realm of area. With type two, of course, how can one not be unbelievably excited, but down the road to actually, that we can actually help people with fewer and fewer hassles and complications and side effects <laughs> achieve success with type two diabetes and manage the re I mean, holy moly, it's amazing. It's just extraordinary. Now all I have to do is make it affordable. Exactly. Yeah, it's <laughs> awesome stuff. But yeah, man, the, the lengths we have to go to to get those drugs for people sometimes. Really? Oh, oh, my, oh my God. <laughs> it's a nightmare, right? Yeah, it is a nightmare. I didn't really answer your question because that's what I think about. I think about like the broad world that's happening right now. We're in the midst of all this awesome stuff. It's so wonderful. If it's affordable. <sighs> New stuff every day. Are you kidding? So we just finished a pilot study where we're trying to reinvent type 2 diabetes education. Because if there's one thing we know about diabetes education programs, usually the group programs, often multi-session programs, they have shown, suppose seemingly, some success with people really benefiting. But my God, they're boring. And the little bit of evidence we had suggests most people never even finish these programs. They just drop out. Probably because it's so freaking boring. So we don't understand why in a world where we have CGM, you would ever have to show anybody pictures of plastic food again. Oh my God, they're not still doing that. Okay. <laughs> to do, why would you ever have, give anybody a lecture about diabetes? Why? So we do a little pilot and says, well, what if you just give every newly diagnosed person a CGM? And you still have group meetings, but those meetings are about what did you discover this week? Or let's set up some little home experiments so you can find out what happened. I don't have to give you a lecture about exercise. You got, you're wearing this thing. Go for a walk. Come back. Let me know what happens every day for a week. You want to know about carbohydrates? Fine. What are you having for breakfast tomorrow morning? Something different. These are things we see all the time. We know that CGM is typically not affordable for people who are not on insulin yet. So we're trying to open up that universe. And so our pilot was amazingly successful. And now we're hopefully going to get support to do a more formal randomized control trial to test that out. So to me, it's things like that. Like we should, anything we can do that can make diabetes more engaging as opposed to a chore, especially for people, I think, I always think a lot about the newly diagnosed type twos. There's a real opportunity there not to make things more boring and awkward yeah. folks. 
So we, I thought that was a really cool little study. I was very excited about that. So hopefully these kinds of studies will make it easier for insurance to cover things like that. And systematically too, it'd be great to even incorporate more into the primary care community. I do think a lot of providers are really uncomfortable with, just aren't familiar with a lot of this technology and people come in with all this data and it's like that Pandora's box, a lot to process in a 20 minute visit. Yeah, it's probably impossible. How do you help primary care providers, for example, look at a clarity chart or a Libre view chart and go, what is this? And such a huge opportunity. Yeah. We make the invisible visible as we move away from A1Cs yeah. to time and rate. There's a really powerful message in that, which is that all people always feel like my A1C is my grade. Oh, I'm going to go see my doctor. I'm going to get grade. Time and range. You can tell subtly changes that, right? I like to tell people like the goal, time and range goal is 70%. And that means you're out of range six hours a day. Have fun. Within limits. But I mean, I still remember when I first heard that. Oh yeah, out of range six hours a day. But we're making things more possible for folks. The message we've given forever is you don't have to manage diabetes perfectly. You can't anyway. And you don't need to. So I love that. That's so great, Bill. Yeah. I'm so grateful that you're still doing all this important work and that you're still just advocating for our community. I really appreciate that. It's me too. I feel lucky every day doing this. I can't imagine why I would ever do anything different and just trying to figure out how we can be of more help and make a difference. Yeah. It helps yeah. me when we get up in the morning, but thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Embracing Diabetes with today's guest, Bill Polonsky. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and maybe felt inspired or informed or less alone or all of the above. Please subscribe to Embracing Diabetes on all major podcast platforms and leave a comment, question, or review. Thanks again. We hope you'll come back for more conversations about diabetes.